If you'll take your Bible then as we step into the Gospel of John, we've started this brand new study series. It's a couple weeks old, and uh, we're going to go to John chapter 1. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, fourth book in the New Testament, John chapter 1. If you need a Bible, just let us know that. Raise your hand. We'll be glad to share a copy of God's Word. And whether you have a Bible or your phone or your iPad, let's make our way to that place. There is a note page in your bulletin. If you don't know that part of the drill, then please pull that out. I think that will be helpful to you along the way. And I will ask you, church family, to stand with me as we open our morning in the Word together by simply reading the Word, the first 18 verses of John chapter 1. It'll be an honor for me to read for us. I'm going to read out of the the English Standard Version. You may have another version, and it might read just slightly different, but we'll all track together. John writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, John the Baptist, by the way. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And we say, amen and amen. You may be seated, church. Now, church family, I don't know how these opening 18 verses could not make every Christian's top five list of favorite Bible passages. I mean, these verses have it all, don't they? I mean, they've just got it all. They hold the most profound truths with the most far-reaching implications, the equal of any other passage of Scripture. If they're not on your top five list of favorite passages, these 18 verses, well, my hope is that by the time we're done today, they will make that list. In literature, these opening 18 verses are called the prologue. In a prologue, a writer typically presents his main thesis, what he wants his readers to know more than anything else. And that is, in fact, what the Apostle John does in these first 18 verses. He'll make this, these massive 
massive declarations that have massive implications in verses 1 through 18. And then starting in verse 19, he'll switch gears and he'll go into what I guess we might be able to call narrative mode. He'll begin to unpack the story of the greatest life ever lived, telling us what Jesus said, who he interacted with, what he did, how he touched people, the miracles that he performed, taking us all the way to the cross and to the resurrection. And we'll be stepping into the narrative of John's gospel, Lord willing, the next time that we're together here. We won't be doing that out at Herky Creek, but we will pick that back up in two weeks. But in this opening prologue, John makes sure that before we engage the narrative, that we would know the single most important, most essential truth in the universe. And what is that truth? Well, it is just this, that Jesus is God in human flesh. That's the most important truth in the universe for you and I to know. And that by believing in him, who he is and what he's done for sinners, we can have eternal life. Life with God forever. We can be, as as Clint pointed out, we can be those children of God, a child of God through faith in Jesus. That's it. The most essential truth in the universe. The most important doctrine of the Christian faith. It must be known. It must be believed for someone to escape hell and enter heaven. Jesus is God. John leaves no doubt about that with those opening five verses of his book, which we've already unpacked together. It's kind of like a, a theological atomic bomb goes off in verses 1 through 5 because John declares that Jesus is eternal in the beginning was the word right and then Jesus is the second person of the trinity John says the word was with God there was God and Jesus was with God in the beginning Jesus is God he says and the word was God And Jesus is that not made maker of all things that exist. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. And then in verses 4 and 5, Jesus is true spiritual life and light. In him was life and the life was the light of men. And it's like boom, 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 boom. Jesus is God. And he's God in a human body. You know, the true church in all ages and all places has always believed this. It has always proclaimed this, that the true church has always demanded this. Any other view of Jesus is at the end of the day a heresy that leads straight to hell. Would you agree with that, church? That Jesus is God is the only view of Jesus by which a person escapes an eternity separated from God. And that's why John makes such a big deal about this as he opens his book. He introduces Jesus as the Word, giving us, interestingly enough, a little word picture by that. 
just as words that are written or spoken reveal or make known invisible thoughts and ideas that are in somebody's mind, well, Jesus makes known the invisible God, doesn't he? Who he is and what he's thinking and planning and intending to do. And so Jesus becomes the living word of God. And now, just in case we've been a little slow on the uptake, in verse, up through verse 13, before John closes his prologue, he says it again to us in words so plain they cannot possibly be misunderstood. Verse 14, the word who is God, verses 1 through 5, we've established that, the word became, say it, flesh and dwelt among us. The word became flesh. I would contend that this is the most important truth in the universe. Eternal God became human. He became the God man. The infinite one became finite. The eternal one entered time. The invisible one became visible. The omnipresent one confined himself in, 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 into the space of a human body. This is the required conviction of anyone who escapes hell and gains heaven. The word became flesh and lived with us. Now, church family, to say that John the Apostle was obsessed with this great truth is not an an overstatement. One of the the reasons I say that to you is because of the way that he begins another of the books that he writes in the New Testament, the way he begins the epistle of 1 John. Now, John, the John that wrote the Gospel of John wrote other books of our New Testament. He wrote three epistles, and then he also wrote the book of Revelation, and, and more accurately, I should say, the Holy Spirit wrote through him. But, but notice the similarities between John 1 and these opening verses and 1 John 1. They're, they're so strikingly similar. Check this out. This is from 1 John 1, verses 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning. Does that sound familiar? Aha. Which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and, and have touched with our hands concerning the what? The word. The word of life. The life that was made manifest, it was revealed, it was made known, and we have seen it. And we testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life. Remember Jesus' life? He's the eternal life. We could capitalize those two words, eternal life, because it's talking about Jesus, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. And you can practically hear the word became flesh and dwelt among us. In those words from first, first John. In verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, so that you may have heaven along with us by believing in, in this eternal life, in Jesus. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. When we see your faith in Jesus, our joy will be off the charts, John says. 
John's obsessed with this. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Oh, church family, that we would be obsessed with that truth too. You know, if we ever wonder why John refers to himself in his gospel, not by his name, he never once mentions his name. If we ever wonder why he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is a beautiful expression all unto itself, The reason he does that is because he never gets over the thought that the eternal creator God, second member of the Trinity, the one true life-giving universe-making God put on his skin, put on his bones, and lived in his world with him. He never gets over that. He loves me. He, he walks with me. He talks with me. The God of the universe, he touched me. I hung out with him. I ate with him. I did life with him. And John's obsessed with that truth. God became flesh and dwelt among us. Oh, that all of us would be as obsessed as John is and never get over it, Right? Oh, that that would be true for us here at IBC. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. These words lead off, in effect, what I would call the crescendo of this 18-verse prologue. And so we now have the God-man, the eternal God who is pure, eternal, spiritual being. He's become part of his creation. God and man are joined together in one person, never to be separated again. Listen to that statement. Don't miss this. God and man are joined together in one person, never again to be separated. Two natures, one human, the other divine both perfect and both distinct. Now they are joined together and they are indivisible forever. Jesus' deity in no way diminished by his humanity and his humanity never made more or less human because he's deity. This is absolutely critical, fellow Christian, to our understanding of who Jesus really is. It's a mystery. I I admit to you, it is a mystery. We'll never be able to grasp how it happens, but it has happened. And we need to know it's happened in order to be saved. Jesus is eternal God. The Word must become fully like us in our humanity So he can actually and accurately represent us before God and stand in our place as our representative. Do you understand this? He has to be us in order to represent us. And he must be holy God at the same time without sin so that he can atone for or pay for our sin with his life and impute or give his righteousness to us who are sinful. He must be infinite God, yet finite flesh. 
Sinless deity, yet able to die for sin. Full deity, inseparably wed to full humanity. The mysterious miracle of the incarnation. Latin, incarnate. In flesh. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now here's how the Holy Spirit explains this mystery through the writer of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2. We'll put this up on the screen for us, beginning at verse 14. Don't miss a word of this. This this just throws light on what we're talking about. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, the children refers to you and me, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery, slavery to sin. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. He helps you and me. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make payment or propitiation for the sins of the people. Now add to that truth what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 4, verses 14 to 16, and you complete the picture. Since then... We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. And what are the next three words, church? Yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Again, Jesus has to be us in order to represent us before God, but he also has to be holy God without sin so that he can atone for or pay for the sin in your life and mine and impute his righteousness to us. In fact, here's how the Apostle Paul captures the same truth in far fewer words. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, because he's God, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Oh, church. May we never, ever stop obsessing over the glorious truth that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Literally, the word that John uses for dwell means to pitch your tent. The Word became flesh. God became flesh and pitched His tent with our tents. Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase of the, the Bible called the message, I'm sure some of you like the message and you read from it. Here's how he translates verse 14. Jesus put on flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Isn't that good? That's perfect. He moved into the neighborhood. And when he did, John says, 
we saw his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father. We saw God glory when Jesus moved into our neighborhood. Now, if you'll flip your note page over, let's think about what John means by that. We saw his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father. What are you, what, what are you, what are you saying, John? Now, another John, by the name of John Piper, uh, a pastor whose name you might know and teaching you might follow, he describes God's glory this way, and I like this. He says, the glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of his many attributes all combined. That's the glory of God. His manifold perfections all on display at the same time. God's glory is the infinite beauty of his character as revealed by his attributes. And since every attribute of God is infinite in its nature, it is a glory that can never be fully comprehended by any finite creature. You and I could never grasp fully the glory of God. On your note page, I I took a stab at this, church family, but I feel very small here. On your note page, I've I've listed just 14 of God's amazing attributes. Just 14 that are, are presented in Scripture. And there are so, so many more and more that we will never know about that we don't know about right now for sure. God's glory is the sum of, 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 of his perfect attributes all coming together. All of the attributes of God in their infinite perfection and from them radiates this glory that John is talking about. His intrinsic, self-possessing, innate personal glory radiates out from the, the, the combining of all of his attributes. You with me? Okay. This isn't baby food that we're talking about here. This is, this is more the meat of, of the word, right? Now, I use the word radiates... His glory, because when we think of glory, what is the one thought that usually comes to your mind when you think about the glory of God? What do you think of? Well, perfection, maybe, but you think of light. Don't you think of light? Light's what I think of. When I think about the glory of God, I think about light. Well, R.C. Sproul, another uh, respected Bible teacher, writing about the glory of God, said this. When we think of the glory of the Lord, the, the image of brilliant light often comes to our minds. And this is certainly appropriate for Scripture often describes the glory of God in terms of a light that shines more brilliantly than anything that we could ever experience here on earth. And church family, honestly, 10 million suns all shining at the same time would not begin to accurately display the glory of an infinite God. Now there is a fascinating moment captured in the Old Testament involving Moses and God. Now, this moment always leaves me with more questions than answers. But it involves a man, and it involves God's glory. This moment is found in Exodus chapter 33, and I'm sure many of you would be familiar with it. Moses has an extraordinary relationship with God And in verse 18 of Exodus 33, Moses says this to God. He says, please 
show me your glory. Show me your glory. I wish to see your glory. And God, in an amazing demonstration of accommodation, says in verse 19, okay, I'll do that. I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, as I do it. I'll proclaim my name. Now, if you remember from last week, our names are really the sum total of who we are, right? I mean, all that Tim is, is captured in his name. You just say my name and you have just captured everything about me. And so the Lord God says, I'm going to pass I'm going to pass by you, Moses, and I'm going to shout my name because it represents all that I am, all of my attributes, everything. I'll shout my name. But then in verse 20, God says this. I have to warn you, Moses. I can't show all of my glory to you because no one can see my face, my unfiltered glory, and survive or live. Then in verse 21, the Lord said, There's a place by me, and you can stand there on the rock, and it, and, and it will pass by you, and I will, and while my glory is passing by, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock, and I'll cover you with my hand until I pass by. And what you're going to see is just the edges of my glory. The edges of my glory shining out from underneath my covering hand, Moses. You may see the fringes of my glory only because if you saw the full glory, you would be incinerated in a millisecond. What is this kind of glory? What is it? I would just say it's God's nature. It's the sum of all of his attributes that make him who he is. And they are blazing out in this brilliant, blinding, yes, we could even say lethal to any created being, light. Moses says, show me your glory. And God says, I'll let you see the outer fringe of it because if I let you see any more, you won't survive. That's the powerful majesty and the glory of God that that John is talking about. In Isaiah chapter 6, angels, we're told, cover their faces when they're in the presence of God because they can't look on His glory. And they're sinless. John says, verse 14, this glory has come to earth In Jesus. That's huge. That's huge. And John would know. Because he experienced a moment with Jesus. Not unlike what Moses experienced. Matthew, Mark and Luke. All record this moment. John does not record it in his gospel. Because he knows these other three gospels have already been written. And they've already covered covered this moment. So he'll not include it in his gospel. But Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, the writer of this gospel, up on a mountain, and there for just a moment, he gives them a glimpse of the divine glory that is his. He pulls back his flesh in some way 
And what do they see? Well, Matthew puts it like this in Matthew 17, 2. There he was, transfigured, changed before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And here language fails. Words fail. They saw Jesus' glory, and it was so blinding, they fell like dead men under the sheer shock and force of this blazing light, even though it was veiled in some way so that they were not consumed. When John says, we have seen his glory, he means both. I saw this blazing, brilliant light on the mountain. I saw that glory. But, but I also saw all of the attributes of, of God displayed in the life of Jesus as I lived with him. John could have said it this way. I saw his glory. I saw his love. I saw his mercy. I saw his wisdom. I saw his knowledge. I saw his power. I saw his justice. I saw his holiness. I saw his compassion. I saw his omnipotence. I saw his omniscience. I saw his holy anger. I saw his righteous wrath. I saw his kindness. I saw his patience. I saw it all. And it was glorious. So when you ask John... If Jesus is God, the God-man, God in human flesh, John will tell you, oh, yes, because I saw his glory. I saw the glory of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of what, church? Grace and truth. Now we're going to come back to that last phrase, full of grace and truth, in just a moment. But, but first notice that John inserts a parenthesis in verse 15. John the Baptist bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. Now we read that and we think, Why would John break the flow of this amazing theological moment in his prologue, this this incredible flow full of grace and truth at the end of verse 14. Notice how it flows so smoothly into verse 16. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Man, it just flows. 14 to 16, 17. It just flows. Why throw this seeming digression into that beautiful flow? For me, it feels like an intrusion. Now, the Holy Spirit has his purposes, and I need to keep that in mind. It feels like an intrusion to me, but I need to keep in mind that to John's Jewish readers, this would not have been an intrusion to insert verse 15 right here. Old Testament law from Deuteronomy states that everything must be confirmed by the testimony of what? Two or even three witnesses, right? That's Old Testament law. So John is declaring that Jesus is God in flesh. That is a gigantic claim to make. What do you need to have? 
You need to have some witnesses to that. And so here, John the Apostle calls on the testimony of John the Baptist as one of his witnesses. Though it doesn't come out real clear here in English, John uses a, a verb tense in verse 15 that lets us know that when John the Baptist says, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. That was something that John said a lot. He spoke that a lot. People heard that from John a lot. And so, 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 so John the apostle says, I'm going to call on that testimony. I'm going to insert it right here. He who comes after me ranks before me. How could that possibly be? That John the Baptist came before Jesus and and yet John the Baptist says, Jesus was before me. In order for that to be true, what does Jesus have to be? Eternal. Eternal God. Do you follow the argument? Yeah, you're with me? Good, good. So, with the testimony of John the Apostle, John the Baptist, and with the testimony of God through the Word... We've got those three witnesses that would satisfy the Jewish reader. Divine glory. He put on human skin. And he is full of what? Grace and truth. So brothers and sisters, what does that mean for you and for me today? What does it mean for us that the word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory, the glory of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth? What does that mean for you? What does that mean for me? It means that only in and through and by Jesus can we ever see the glory of God and experience what it means to be in relationship with God. It's only through Jesus that that can happen. Listen carefully. Full of grace and truth means that the glory of God does not incinerate me in my sin. The grace of God. Full of grace and truth. What is grace, church? What is grace? Well, Grace is undeserved, unearned, unmerited kindness and mercy lavished on one who has committed a great wrong. That's grace. Grace is getting what you don't deserve, what you you don't merit. You're without hope, but you get kindness and mercy. We call that grace. Truth. What is truth? Truth is what's real, what's factual, what's what really is. It's, it's right judgment. Jesus, who is God in flesh, comes to us, John says, full of grace and truth. Now, this is really good news, isn't it? That God comes to us full of grace and truth. Is that not good news? That's good news, but it's way more than that, isn't it? It's way more than that. It's the best news in the history of the universe. The history of the world. God could have chosen to become flesh as a judge and an executioner. And all of us would be found guilty before him and we'd be sentenced to everlasting separation and hell. And such a sentence would be just and right and true because we have all rebelled against God, haven't we? Every single one of us in this room. 
We've all sinned against him times beyond counting. Romans 3.23 declares that. But Jesus did not come in flesh as God in that way, as judge and executioner. No, the word, the son who is God became flesh so that he could be what? Gracious. Gracious to us so that we could stand in the presence of the glory of God and not be consumed. The word became flesh so that this grace, full and lavish, would come to us without compromising God's nature as infinitely true and always true to himself. This is not going to be a wishy-washy, unprincipled, mushy, gooey, sentimental kind of fuzzy grace. This is going to be a righteous, holy, very, very costly grace. It'll take Jesus to the cross, won't it? This grace will take Jesus to his death. God will die on... God will die on a cross. He'll die for sins he didn't commit. Your sins, my sins. This is why he became flesh. He had to have flesh in order to die. He had to be human in order to die as the God-man in our place and make grace from God possible for you and me. Remember again, Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. The word became flesh so that he could die. The cross is where the fullness of grace shines out most brilliantly, church. Do you believe it? You look at the cross. You look at this. And this is where grace blasts out. But the cross is also where truth, full truth, is found. God is gracious, but he also has to be true to himself. He is holy and cannot simply gloss over the rebellion that every sin committed by every sinner represents to him. When Jesus died, God was true to himself because the sin was punished. It was paid for. It wasn't ignored. God could not do that and be true. And so when Jesus died in our place, God was true to himself, but also gracious to us. Do you see what John is trying to say? Verse 16. For from his fullness, we have all received what? Grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. John says the Old Testament law can only show us where we have failed God. Failed to live up to his holy standards. The law is good, it's right, it's beautiful, but the law can only show us what God wants. It can never save us. It can only condemn us because we can't keep the law. 
But in Jesus, we receive from God grace upon grace. Literally in the Greek text, grace after grace. Grace in the place of grace. This is how it works. It's an endless, never diminishing supply of grace upon grace upon grace upon grace that is lavished on you through your faith in Jesus. When you think you've exhausted all of God's grace in your life, (laughs) this verse says you only discover that you have every bit as much as you've ever had and you will always have that much forever and ever and ever of the grace of God. It's grace upon grace. Brothers and sisters, we see and we will see even more of the glory of God. We see God's glory now. We're going to see even more of God's glory because the word became flesh because he came into our neighborhood in fullness of grace and in fullness of truth. These two brilliant attributes of God meet in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for sinners. God can be both gracious and he can be true to himself and he does that through the God-man. Are you with John? You following John? This isn't baby food this morning. This is beautiful. Oh, that we would be obsessed with these truths. In Jesus, through our faith in him, we're given grace and truth to see glory. Do you understand that? To see glory. To see God. And then John ends his prologue with with that declaration. Verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side. Oh, he has made him known. Moses was permitted to see the fringe of God's glory. But he could not see God. No one has ever seen God. But because God is an invisible spirit bathed in glory. But the one who is God the Son, who was with the Father in eternity past, who is at the Father's side in this moment, John says, he has made him what? Known. He has made the invisible visible. He has made the unknowable God knowable. If anyone wants to know what God is really like, all they need to do is look at who? Jesus. Just look at Jesus and know God. See God. But church family, here here is a sad and sobering truth to keep in mind this morning as we wrap up. I mean, we have feasted on some incredible truth. We have feasted on the word of God. But we need to keep something in mind here as we think about seeing God through Jesus. The Apostle Paul writing to the believers in the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 4.4 makes this statement. The God of this age, who's that? That's Satan. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. 
This is a reminder, brother, sister, that the Jesus you know, that the Jesus you love, the God that you know through Jesus, Satan is tirelessly trying to keep that Jesus hidden from your friends, from your neighbors, from your family members. He seeks to throw a a veil, spiritual veil, over the eyes of those who don't know Jesus right now. He seeks to gouge out their eyes so that they cannot see the glory of God through Jesus. So they cannot see the grace of God and understand what that grace means for them. Sister, brother, when, when you're interacting with someone who you suspect does not know your Savior, not a child of God like you are, remember what Satan is doing in their life. He is seeking to keep them in spiritual darkness, blind to Jesus, to his glory, to his grace, to his truth. He doesn't want them to see your Savior. And so as you're interacting with that one who is, who is being actively blinded by the evil one, pray in that moment of interaction with your neighbor, with, with, with your, your friend, with your family member. Pray in that moment. Ask God to give you the words that will turn your conversation in a spiritual direction. I mean, it is amazing how small a nudge is required to turn a conversation towards Jesus. We just don't do it. You or they may bring up the name of Jesus, giving you an open door to talk about the Jesus of John, verses 1 through 18. God, eternal God, life, grace, truth, glorious Jesus, who put on flesh. You might get to talk about him. Ask for that. You've got, a, you've got someone in your life who's being blinded by the enemy right now and can't see Jesus. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. To see Jesus? Why, that's to see God. We should obsess, shouldn't we? Over the Word who became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. I'll let Jesus have the last word this morning. From John chapter 12, verses 44 and 45, which we will get to one day, Jesus cried out and he said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. Amen. And amen. Let's pray together. Oh, oh, Lord God in heaven, Holy Spirit, Lord Jesus, we have been in some rarefied air this morning. We have been in holy places. We have, we have seen the fringe of your glory, Heavenly Father. Thank you for that gift to us today through your word. We've, we've seen the fringe of your glory. We would love to see more. 
That will be true. The more we get to know Jesus, the better we get to know him. So I'll thank you in advance for that. Lord, if there is one in this room this morning who does not know Jesus, would you tear the blinders from their eyes? Would you turn their heart of stone into a heart of flesh? Would you give them the ability to see Jesus and by seeing Jesus, see you, the God who is gracious and true? Oh, how we love you, but only because you loved us first. Thank you, Jesus, for putting on our flesh, moving into our neighborhood so that you could live our life and die our death. We praise you. We thank you in your great and awesome name. Amen and amen. Church family, let's stand together.